Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. These truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. And that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Which include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The first line, not the first lines, but early lines in the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal, created equal, didn't happen by accident, equal, created equal, endowed by the creator with certain rights and responsibilities that go along with this. Now, when we look at our our nation, and I'll talk more about this, but so I did make it to the fireworks on Thursday night, and I sit there and watch the fireworks, and it always, you know, I'm pondering, thinking about our nation, what's going on, and, and all the great blessings and reasons we have to celebrate, from natural things in our creation to the way our government was set up, uh, to the opportunities and freedoms. We have all of those kinds of things. And, and then at the same time thinking, oh man, you know, you, you watch the news, you talk to people, you listen, and there's some trouble brewing, isn't there? I say true, we're way maybe past the brewing part. It's just trouble. And, and so it can be challenging to us and overwhelming. And what I want to do today is uh, we're going to start in Psalm 147, but I want to talk to you uh, uh, to help us have some understanding of what's going on. So when we're done, you maybe, hopefully you'll have either a clearer understanding or reinforce your clear understanding of what's really going on. And then I want to give you a solution. It's not necessarily the whole solution, but a significant solution, something that you and I can do about this to make a difference. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 147. This psalm is an upbeat psalm. There are, boy, there are plenty of psalms that are, are a little heavy and challenging and very real and raw emotionally. And this one is, is more on the positive side. And in it, what we have is the psalmist here, uh, and, and they think this was probably written after the exiles, after Israel had been exiled to Assyria and then eventually to uh, Babylon, and then they have come back into the land. They think that this is when this psalm was probably written. Um, but it's, it's a song of praise for everything that God has done for Israel, for their nation. So let's begin reading. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is beautiful. Okay, so this idea, we have a reason to praise God. He continues, the Lord builds up Jerusalem, which is their capital city. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? More than one occasion in my life, he has healed my broken heart. And when I've been wounded, he's bound up those wounds and cared for me. And he'll do the same for you. And then it talks here about God and what he's like. It says he counts the number of the stars. How many stars are there? Well, when the psalmist wrote this, they could probably see maybe three to five, three or four thousand stars 
if they could count them all. Uh, but today we know that there are like 200 billion trillion stars. And this still is true. He counts all the stars. He calls them all by name. Isn't that something? The God has a name for all the stars, each and every one of them. They are special to him. He knows them. Okay, so this next statement only makes sense. I mean, it, how could we say anything else? Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. So, by the way, when you find yourself not knowing what's going on, God knows. When you find yourself saying, I don't have a clue about what to do, God knows. Okay, and so we can look to him and lean. And then it says, if we'll humble ourselves here, verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. So God will respond to us when we humbly come before him. And then, so then it comes back saying, we need to worship God because of these things. Verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. And the idea that God caring for his creation. You know, we get a picture of this in the New Testament when Jesus says that not, he talks about the sparrows, the little birds, and how that not one of them falls to the ground without the Father being there, knowing and I heard a preacher once describe it. It just hit me so, so good. A picture of that little bird in the wintertime on the tree. It's coming down in his life. It's, it's cold and, it's, and it's, it falls to, to the earth. It's like the, the Lord catches that little bird and said, good job, you did what you were made to do. And then lets him down. God cares about his creation. And he cares about the creation in which we live in our country. Man, you don't have to travel very far in our country to see that we have an amazingly beautiful country, don't we? How many of you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Several of you. There's something to walk up there. It's just overwhelming. And then my backyard. I already talked about my backyard. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. The, the wonders of God's creation. We have reason to sing and praise him. There's 10. He does not delight in the strength of a horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. You go, what? Well, I agree. You know, what I'm noticing is the older I get, now I have old man legs. No wonder God takes no pleasure in them. But this is not what this means, right? He's talking about this, where, what strength is it that we're depending on? And so the idea of the horse in, in battle, the horse in battle and the strength that comes there, or even the, the horse that maybe works in the field and the strength that's there. And he talks about man and his strength. The strength starts here. You know, you can have the strongest upper body you want, but if you don't have legs to... But what he's saying is, that's not what God is looking for, right? It isn't physical strength. It isn't what we can do for ourselves, right? We live in America. It's a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of country and culture, right? The heroes of our, our movies are almost always a loner, you know, who just makes it happen on his own. That's not... That's not God's perspective on things. What it says is this. He says, verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. And those who fear him is this idea of, of giving him his rightful place in our lives. Those of us who reverence him and respect him and, and recognize that he is our God, as we sang. Uh, 
And so this idea of who fear him really is talking about people who have come to a personal relationship with Christ. People who have come to see that we are needy, that we don't have what it takes to, to be right with God. Because we look at the scriptures, Jesus said you've got to be perfect like, you're, like God is. Huh. Well, everybody knows that can finish this sentence. Well, no one is perfect. Exactly, except for Jesus. And he was, he lived a perfect and sinless life and he died on the cross with no sins of his own to pay for. And God the Father took the penalty for my sin and your sins, the sins of the whole world, placed them on Jesus. Jesus died paying that penalty for the sin and then victoriously rose three days later. And so he says to us that if we will acknowledge our sin, that we have sinned against the Holy God, that we can't fix it. You can't get baptized and fix it. You can't give money to fix it. You can't do good deeds to fix it. It's, it's all, only way it can be fixed is to turn to Jesus and, and hope in his mercy. And so when we make that decision, we, we receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and God moves into our lives and begins changing us in good ways from the inside out. And he says, so this is what the Lord takes pleasure in. The Lord takes pleasure in those who have turned to him and, and given him his rightful role in their lives and hope and his mercy and everything that goes along with that. And then he says, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. So he's back talking to their city and their country. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. And so he's reminding us here that God is sovereign over all of creation, right? He can control, do, start, stop, anything that he determines needs to be done. And then he concludes in 1920. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and the idea is with any other nation. And as for his judgments, they, those other nations, have not known them. But God's people and God's nation do know them. And so what's the response? Praise the Lord. And so what I see here at the end of uh, the uh, Psalm here, verses 19 and 20, that he's saying to Israel and to God's people in Israel, because not everybody in Israel actually worshiped God all the time and feared God, but the people who feared God and, and knew him and wanted to serve him, and then the nation itself, he's saying to them, I have done something for you. And he's saying really that I haven't done for anybody else, but I have done something for you. I have given you so much. Do you remember what Jesus said? When he said, to whom much is given, much is what? Required. Required. And so there's a responsibility inherent in this to Israel. You should be living for me. This is all that I have done for you. You need to be a good steward of it. You need to take care of it. 
You need to mind, be mindful of all of these things. Now, the United States is not Israel. I mean, you said, well, that's a duh statement. But I want you to know that there, there are people who in, get misguided and, and want to take every promise that was made to Israel and apply it to America. Okay? And that isn't the way that works. But I will say to you that there are principles here that apply. And, and here's the reality that, that God... Well, before I talk about that, let me just let me sum up the psalm for you, okay? Three things from this psalm. First is that we should purposefully take pleasure in praising the Lord in worship. Go ahead and go to that if you would, Eduardo. Purposely, on purpose, right? Take pleasure in praising the Lord in worship. That's what we see in that psalm, right? Comes back to it again, praise the Lord. Sing with thanksgiving, praise the Lord, okay? We ought to do that because it changes us. When we come and worship and, you know, we come and sometimes we just aren't feeling it. Anybody besides me ever come and you're not feeling it yet? Anybody honest enough to say, yeah, sometimes that happens, doesn't it? And what happens to the preacher? Oh, no. But the idea is that almost always, I, in fact, I don't know that I remember a time I didn't, when I said, okay, Lord, and I engage in worship, you know, we pray together, we, we lift our hearts to the Lord, and then we look to the Word. It's always a good thing in my life. It's always positive, and so we ought to take pleasure in this and, and really engage with it, okay? Some days you might sit, that's nothing, you can't even sing because you're so emotional. That's all right, still engage with God in it. Engage in God, with God in that thing that you're struggling with, that you're hurting, but I'm here to worship you. I want to be here to worship you, okay? Second thing, we should continually be grateful for God's blessings in our lives, right? So this is, it makes sense to us, right? Grateful people are much nicer people. Grateful people are in a place to see what's good and needs to be done. Because if you're always ungrateful, you're not seeing it. Because if, if, when you're ungrateful, who's it about? I'm really asking, who's it about when you're ungrateful? Life is about you, that's right. But when we start being grateful and we're grateful to God for these things, it, it, it draws us out and causes us to see the world differently, okay? So we should be grateful. But here's the, the third one is what I really want to focus in on today since it is Independence Day weekend, that we should be faithful stewards of the nation God has entrusted to us. Faithful stewards. In other words, God, I would say to you, like I said, we're not Israel, and I'm not trying to tell you that all these, all these promises apply to us because God sent them to Israel. But I would say it is true for us that God has indeed entrusted a great nation to us. There are so many things that are good and, and powerful and, and make a huge difference in our lives. So let's, let's, let's spend a little bit of time talking about that today. All right, so we should be faithful stewards of the nation God has entrusted. So go ahead and go to that, Eduardo, if you would, all right? And the first thing that I want you to see is this, that our nation was built largely on a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. Now, just let me dispel, make sure you're clear on what I'm not saying. Our nation has never been a Christian nation as such, if we're thinking that everybody in the nation is a Christian, right? It's never been the case, okay? Um, and our Constitution, very clearly, I'll talk about that a little more in a minute, you know, is not a Christian document. However, when the founding fathers were putting, by the way, there's a reason why they did that too. 
But when the founding fathers were, were debating these things, debating what needed to go in the Constitution, what should be protected, how should the government function, uh, why we should have three different branches of the government, all these kinds of things, the most commonly quoted book that they would go to and quote in their uh, discussions and arguments was the Bible. They were going to the scripture and saying, what would a government that was consistent with God and who he is and what he has to say about, about truth and culture and government, all those kinds of things, what would that look like? Okay? And they did have other ideas too. They did bring other ideas from history in. But nonetheless, our nation, the, law, the constitution of our nation really embodies and maybe even more importantly protects a biblical view of government and the world and how we ought to live. Okay? Uh, I'm not, once again, please don't hear me, I'm not saying the Constitution is like the Scriptures. I'm not saying that. But I would say to you, in the history of our world, there has never been a nation like ours when it comes to the kind of government we have and how long we have lasted with that government. And so God has blessed us in many, many ways. Um, think about, I, I, so last Sunday night, uh, in my um, efforts to really connect with the people who show up for the car show, um, I went and sat down with them. A whole bunch of them sit up there at the top in the shade. And I went and sat down and talked with them for a while. And then I asked them a question. I said, hey, I need some help for my sermon this coming week. Could you guys help me with that? Of course, they thought that was pretty funny to start with. But then I asked them, I said, I want to, because it's, it's, you know, it's Independence Day weekend, I'm going to be talking about our country some, and I said, what do you see as some of the greatest things about our country, the things that make our country really good and that you're so glad that, you know, that you're part of a country like this? And they kind of buzzed a little bit, and, and then one person said, well, really what it comes down to is freedom. Freedom, that we have the freedom to do what we think is right. And everybody agreed, and that was the end of that. They didn't want to talk anymore about it. That was it. It was freedom. And then I asked them, I said, okay, so what are the things that you're concerned about? Because, you know, I, you see the news. I, what, are you, what are you concerned about in our nation? What's the, and they said, well, it's just, it's lost the freedom. That we feel like we're losing our freedoms or are going to lose our freedoms. And again, that was it. And I thought about that, and there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? One of the things that has made our country uh, such a, a, a great blessing to us is freedom. Now, when the founding fathers put this together, and some, of the, some of them have written about and talked about that, the kind of government we have, and so the nation we will be under that government, only works for a good and moral people. In other words, it gives people freedom and the responsibility for their own lives. And that the government is not to be micromanaging and, and telling, you know, what to do and believe and all that kind of stuff. That that's not the government's role. And so it was freedom. And by the way, let me just take a sidetrack here, okay? Can I do a sidetrack here? Freedom. It hit me a couple years ago how important freedom is. And not because I'm an American. Biblically speaking, I want you to think about Adam and Eve in the garden. 
First of all, God says you can do what? Eat of any tree you want, right? I don't care if you fry it, boil it, broil it. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Eat anything you want except that one thing, that one tree. Don't eat of it. You do, you're going to die. But what did God do? He He told them not to do that, and he gave them the what? The freedom to choose. He gave them the freedom to choose knowing that a bad, what a bad choice would do. Every hardship and every pain physically or in your heart uh, all stems from the choice that Adam and Eve made. And then, of course, we multiply our own choices on top of that, our sinful ones. But the idea is that God felt that freedom, their ability to choose freely was so important that he was willing to allow all of the consequences of sin to come into the world to keep them free. How important is freedom? It matters. And of course, from God's perspective, freedom is never to do whatever you want. Freedom is to do what's right, good and right. And there's tremendous freedom in that area. So we see all of these things that we have this freedom entrusted to us by God that we need to be good stewards of. We really need to be good stewards of it. And, and you know what's happened to us in our country and, and a lot in our uh, nation, I mean, it happens to us in the church. It catches up with us. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. But we think that freedom is the freedom to do whatever we want to do. Freedom to do whatever we feel like doing. And nobody can tell me otherwise. That's not the way God sees freedom. God sees freedom that we are free to choose to do what he wants us to do and to pursue those things. All right. So we, ha- we have a nation that has largely been built on a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. So how are we doing with that? This is what God has entrusted to us. How are we doing with that? Uh, Does anybody besides me ever get discouraged sometimes when you watch the news? Okay. Man, so many things that are scary. And and, and, I mean, it it does get scary in what's happening, all that kind of stuff. But I want to say to you that when we talk about how are we doing with this nation God entrusted to us, I would say to you that we are actually experiencing the built-in judgment of God. We are experiencing the built-in judgment of God. And by that I mean, God could be actively judging. I don't know that. But I do know that in his word, he has put in built-in judgments for sin. It's called the law of what? Sowing and reaping, right? It's there. And so... Uh, In Proverbs it says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. This word reproach, interesting word, if you go back and they chose the word in English, one of the early definitions, hang on a second, where did it go here? There it is. We normally think of reproach as meaning rebuke, disapproval, but there's an older meaning to this word reproach, which means a judgment involving condemnation. A judgment involving condemnation. And so there is a judgment of God that just comes along with sin. When you sin, 
you reap the negative consequences immediately of some kind. There's judgment that goes along with that. And so in our nation, when our nation, and it's so easy, we talk our nation seems so generic, but okay, when the people in our nation, the institutions in our nation, uh, set aside God and set up their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own ways, what does it bring with it? Reproach, condemnation, built-in judgment from God. And we are experiencing that. You think about the, the lie that was told to Adam and Eve, where they, um, he, the, Satan says to them, is it true that you, you can't eat of any of the trees of the garden? And they say, no, 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 we can eat of the trees of the garden, just can't eat the, that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for God says, if we do, we'll die. And Satan says, you won't die. Mm -mm. God knows that the day that you eat it, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. You will become like God. Do you understand that that goes right back to a passage of scripture, Isaiah chapter 14, where it seems like God is describing the origins of Satan. It seems like it there. And, and in that passage, uh, Lucifer, as he's called by name there, he says, I am going to ascend into heaven I'll exalt myself above all the other beings in heaven. I will be like the Most High. I will be like God. And so he did. He sinned against God. And now we find him tempting human beings, saying what? You will be like God. But man, sin corrupts and brings evil, all that kind of stuff. But what I want to say to you, and actually we're going to see it in a passage we're going to look at here in just a moment. But that... Um, our culture, a lot of areas of our culture have bought into that lie and determined that we will be our own gods. And they aren't necessarily saying those words, but that's the reality. Let's take our, our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Let's see how things have, I think this, the scripture describes where we're at as a culture. It wasn't written to us here, but it's written for us, and, and I think we can see these principles here. In verse 25 of Romans 1, before this it talks about, it's the, he starts to talk about the sin problems and the immorality, and then he says this. He talks about this people who exchange the truth of God for the lie. Okay, that's what we just talked about. And worship and serve the creature, the creature, which we might say the created being or the created things, and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, I'm going to say to you, that is where we are at in our society. Because the prevailing views uh, with respect to where everything came from, where you and I came from, that then determines so many other things, is not that they're the creator of the Bible. Right? At worst, it's an atheistic view that says, no, the, all there is is the, the material universe and, and we are the random chances of evolution. There is no purpose, there is no direction. And some of the major thinkers in science and philosophy say those things, okay? And maybe on a not so bad extent, some people say, well, yeah, I believe in God, but you know, this still all happened by accident, you know, and, and it gets so ugly and messy, the results of that belief. 
But the idea is they have rejected a creator. And, and here's why this matters. Because if there is a creator, that means there is design, doesn't there? There's a design. Even, have you ever seen any really weird art? You guys still awake here this morning, holiday weekend? Have you ever seen any weird art? Come on, we've all seen some really weird art. But I want to tell you, even that weird, most disorganized piece of art, we said when the person made it, he had an idea. And he made it. She made it, right? And we might say, why? But they did, okay? And, and so if there's a creator of the world, if there's a creator of the universe, then there is a purpose. There is a design. Which, by the way, that's what, we give a questionnaire out to the car show people every week, just some you know, trivial kind of stuff. And then one question, as, as uh, my brother Bert here says, and somebody, he heard it someplace, but we put a pebble in their shoe and ask them a question about God, something related to that. And one of the questions we ask is, do you believe God? If you believe in God, do you believe he has a purpose for your life? And uh, the majority did believe that. Um, but then once again, we're dealing with people. Uh, I'm, I'm the young person in the group, okay? So older people. But anyway, th this idea of purpose and design matters because when we take away the creator, we lose the design. We can't figure out who am I supposed to be attracted to sexually? We can't figure that stuff out. We can't figure out, is this, a, is this baby a boy or a girl? Well, we don't know yet. Because we, have to, we ignore what? There is no design when you reject the Creator. And I'm sure we could find lots of other illustrations of that. So let's see, let's read on what happens. So when a culture rejects God as Creator, Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions for even their women, exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, right, pushed the creator out, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. And I would suggest to you that this is largely built in, that God built that in. When we reject his ways, we suffer consequences because of it. But the, and once again, in our Christian culture of the day, we want to emphasize these, oh, this is, a, this is what the problem is, it's these problems. No, 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 this is the result of the problem. But that's only part of it. Let's continue reading. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, Sexual immorality, that includes all of it, ours, as well as others who look at the world differently. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness. Hey, is, is, is money a big deal in the culture? Are people ever greedy? You always have to have more covetousness, okay? Uh, maliciousness, man, there's a mean-spiritedness out there today. Full of envy, murder, murder in the news? Strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. 
And so, man, we could read through this, and so much of our culture was like the early Roman culture that Paul was writing in. And guess what? It's no surprise, because largely as a culture, we have rejected the Creator. And let me say to you, just, just put a little thought in there, that you and I are quite capable of living at any given moment as if there is no Creator. Right? We need to be mindful of this ourselves. This is, we're not just talking about those people out there somewhere. So let's look at where this brings us to. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 59. It's another description of, of the nation of Israel when they were in sin. And we see what happens here. Isaiah 59. Start in verse 9. It's all awesome to read, but let's just start in verse 9. This idea, because of the sin in the world, he says, therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. I mean, have you noticed in the news that things are getting better? No. We look for light, but there is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in blackness. Let's jump down to verse 12. For our transgressions, our sins, are multiplied before you, God, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Now let me show you where this brings us. Justice is turned back. I want you to know that as much as you will hear cries for justice, oftentimes what they're saying crying for injustice is not justice. Justice from God's perspective is what God says is right, being done or implemented. That's justice, okay? Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So it's a, truth is fallen. Truth is no longer the standard, folks. If they talk about truth, they don't mean what, what you and I and the Bible means by truth. By truth, the Bible talks about what is objectively true. It is true whether I believe it or not. It's true whether I like it or not. It's true whether you like it or not, or whether you feel like it's true. And, and, see, that's, but our world says, no, no, your truth is whatever you feel is true. And when that happens, how can we have a conversation if we disagree? You can't, can you? And equity cannot enter. That's just, that's just common sense. You notice any lack of common sense? So truth fails. It's not the truth that fails. It fails in this culture. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Have you noticed that when somebody comes out in society, and I don't mean just comes out like we normally think, I mean, but comes out in society and adopts a position that doesn't go along with the, what's politically correct. What happens to them? They get attacked. Their houses get picketed. Someone shows up with a gun intending to kill them. I mean, this is the kind of stuff. This is where we are at as a culture and as a society. Yeah. And so here's how this works. If, if, if you and I disagree about something and we both believe that there's truth, 
Okay, we believe in this concept of truth. And, and so we could even say it's the word, right? You and I can disagree about something and I'll, you and I can stand next to each other and talk about what? The truth. Whether it's this or whether it's about anything else, okay? But we can talk about the truth and I can say, well, this and you can talk about it. We're talking about something that is objectively true, that is true for both of us, you know? And we have to figure that out. And so the goal is we work to figure out what's really true. But what if there is no truth? How do we make a decision? I'll tell you how we make decisions. Who can talk the loudest? Who can talk the fastest? Who can make the other person pay for their position? Who has, and Rick was in, who has the most power? And that's what I see going on in our culture, in our society. We can't have objective conversations about the truth with so many people. And when you disagree, they're going to bring powers to be. That's the whole idea of canceling you, right? We're going to bring the powers to be against you. We're going to make you pay for your position until you change your mind. All right. So this is where we are at. The question is, how did we get here? How did we get here? Well, certainly Satan's at work, right? He's been at work from the beginning. He's working behind the scenes. He's the God of this world. He has the ears of so many in the culture. And so he's definitely doing that. But it's interesting. If we were to go to 2 Chronicles 7.14, which again is a promise for Israel, not for us. But in there, God's talking about if I'm judging, if you're experiencing my judgment as a nation, he says this. He says, if, let me tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if that evil political party will change. If those people who have all the wrong views will change their mind. He doesn't say that. He says, if my people, who are called by my name, are we called by his name Christians? Christ. If they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And then he says this, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. But I want you to see that when God entrusted this nation, great nation, to us, and I know we're living 200 plus years later, we have, we're not responsible for everything, but he has entrusted it to us, and how have we done? Are we a much better embodiment today of what we ought to be, or is it getting worse? And so I would say to you that we as Christians do bear some responsibility in this. Now, not, I, it's not my fault or responsibility that the world's going crazy. That's not what I'm talking about. But let's, let's see what I am talking about here. Okay, Revelation chapter 3. I think we have been captured a lot by the spirit of the age. And just to give you a little warning, I think we're going to go a little longer than usual. Okay, hang in there. Before we read from Revelation, in... Um, Ezekiel chapter 36. It's, it's challenging Jerusalem and Israel about their sin. And he says, you're like your sister Sodom. In fact, you're worse than your sister Sodom. Talking about the city of Sodom. And he says there, um, he says that this was the sin of, of Sodom. I mean, if I said, what's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? You have something that comes to mind, don't you? But it, it, God says, no. Uh, I mean, yes, that happens. That's the result of the sin of Sodom. The sin of Sodom, three things. He says pride, 
an abundance of food and lots of idleness. Pride, wealth, idleness. You know, we live in a country, and, and you know, we want to be proud of our country in a good way, right way, but we, live in a, we are the richest nation in the world. Maybe in all of human history. We are. So we have wealth, and we can do not just good with it, we can do bad with it. <laughs> Right? We have the wealth. And do we have more leisure time than probably any culture that has ever existed? You know, this idea of a 40 hour work week, five days a week, is unheard of around the world. You have to work every day to survive. Okay, so we, there's nothing wrong with having wealth, nothing wrong with having leisure time, but when you start it with pride, we will be God in our own lives. Those things become terrible things for us. And so that's sort of the spirit of the age and, and I think the underlying thing that's going on. So if we look in Revelation here, verse 14, he's talking to churches, the, the different kinds of churches that I think probably exist throughout history, but some of them, there may be some time period kind of stuff going on too, but he's, verse 14, it says this, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So let's just stop saying this idea of lukewarm. Anybody here like a cold drink of water right, when it's hot? Yeah. Do you like a hot drink of something when it's cold? Which season do you prefer lukewarm in? For the most part, we don't, right? This is what God is saying. Hot or cold, and he isn't saying being good or bad. He's saying there's different ways to do this, different ways to live for me, and you aren't. You're in the middle there somewhere. And then he says this, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Boy, do you know when I was most naturally, natural is not necessarily the right word, but the quickest to turn to God about things. You know when that was? When I had nothing. When I didn't know how I was going to pay this or buy that. When I, man, I turned to God. Now I make a good salary. I don't have to turn to God. Now that's a lie. But do you understand what I'm saying? That making sense? This is where we all are as people. You might say, well, I have needs. I get that. But nonetheless, we are so rich, so wealthy. And so it's easy for us to say we don't need anything. And he says, here's the truth. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And he says, turn to me. Turn back to me. And so it is possible for Christians to get caught up in the spirit of the age and to live the good life. And really, we don't live, a, the only difference between us and the world out there is that we don't do all the really bad stuff. We can be that way. I'm not saying you are. But that is the way we can get caught up if we aren't careful. And so I think we want to say, what role do we have in our nation not being what it's supposed to be? Okay? So. Jump back in. The first thing here, a nation built largely on a Judeo-Christian biblical worldview. God has entrusted us to us 
And we're saying, how are we doing with it? How have we done with it? And so the second thing that he has entrusted to us is freedom to live as Christians, carrying out the Great Commission right here, right? Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teach them to observe all the commands I have given you. And by the way, we're some of those disciples ourselves, right? So we're also the ones who are learning and learning to observe and live. And, and then we help others to do that, and then they help others. That's the God's intent. So let me ask you, do you think that our culture is in the situation it is in because we've, taught, we've brought too many people to Christ and taught them how to live as Christians? No. You understand that every person that we reach for Christ and then teach to live the way Christ wants them to live is a person who is very much less likely to get caught up in the evil of our culture. You know, what if in, in the Worcester area, I don't know how many genuine Bible-believing Christians there are, but what if every year one of us in this, what are we going to say, 2,000, 3,000, 10,000? I don't know. But what if we each reached one next year? And the next year we reached one, each reached everybody. We've, now we're thousands upon thousands. Do you think it would start to make a difference in our culture around us? Huge difference, wouldn't it? And, but I would say to you is that as we have grown wealthier, as we have grown more freedom and, and leisure time, and we, that we have not overall made good choices. We didn't say, good, now I can invest more in, in carrying out the Great Commission. Now I have more time to spend doing this. No, we've kind of gravitated the middle and said, hey, this is pretty good. But the middle is lukewarm. All right? Okay. All right. So the third thing that God has entrusted to us is the opportunity to share the gospel that forever changes people's lives. When I think about where I've come from in life and what my tendencies are, the things I struggle with even as a Christian, I, I think back and think that uh, if I never came to Christ, I probably would have tried to be an attorney, maybe would have made a lot of money, and very high likelihood I'd be an alcoholic or addicted to some substance. I'm just telling you, knowing the way I, my natural tendencies are. Uh, probably being an immoral man, I can't imagine that I would have stayed married and everything, you know? It'd have been terrible. But on April 4th, 1975, I received Jesus as my savior. And he changed me, he made me a new creation. He changed my desires and, and, and the, the, the path that I was walking, all of these things. It made the hugest difference in the world. So here's what I want you to think about. When, when you sit and watch the news, and if you're like me, you get discouraged or you get angry, and you say, those people, those people. Two things I want you to do. The first one is to say, wait a minute. Apart from Jesus, I am those people. You get that? Apart from the grace of God in my life, I am those people. Second thing I want you to think is those people need the gospel. So that we don't, you know, we don't want to become the haters, do we? 
We don't want to become those people who are always harsh and mean-spirited. Oh, that's just the result of not doing things God's way. We want to be brokenhearted for these people. We need to look and say, they need the Lord. How do I get it to them? I don't know if I can get it to those particular people, but man, I got neighbors that there's no way that happens by accident. I'm going to have to do something on purpose to try to reach them. And so what I want to challenge you today is to ask yourself two questions. Because we're going to be faithful stewards. First one is, have I been faithful? Have I been faithful when it comes to, you know, living out this great commission and sharing the gospel? And I would say to you, I mean, I, I have done it. I've, I've worked on it. I do it. But I have not, I have not been what I would say 100% faithful here. I need to do better. And so you need to ask yourself the same question. Have you really been faithful to be about the Father's business, as Jesus said? And then if you, you need to ask this question, what do I need to do to be faithful? What do I need to do? And I can't give you, here's the answer. I accept to say to you that each of us, all of us, each of us individually and all of us together need to Get serious about seeking the Lord. Lord, what do you want us to do? How do we do this? We need to get about your business and not be lukewarm. And we need to, to be ready to share the gospel and look for opportunities to share the gospel. And tell you what, that's going to be awkward sometimes and it's going to be hard. You won't want to do it sometimes and all that. But we need to get to the place where we do that, where we're walking in the Spirit. I'm not talking about going out in there being a fruit loop and... I'm talking about going out there walking in the Spirit and say, okay, Lord, yeah, Lord, you want me to say something here? And they're taking that step. So we have to get serious about pursuing it because ultimately, in our nation, this idea of we're stewards of this nation that God has entrusted to us, it really boils down to being a matter of faithfulness on the part of God's people. A matter of faithfulness on our part. Who's praying, includes so many things. All right, I'll, I'll stop there. Let me just say to you that when I talked earlier about receiving Christ as Savior, if you haven't done that, please reach out. Let, me, let us talk to you and help you understand what you need to in order to, to make that change, that first decision that will change everything else. Father, we come to you now in prayer. I thank you for your word and, and that, um, that you have still, we still work in our lives and we still have the blessings of freedom to use to serve you, at least at this point, Lord. I pray that we'll be faithful stewards of it and that you'd stir our hearts and minds about how can I be faithful to the world around me, to those people who need you just like we do. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I will right, well, have a great rest of the holiday, whatever you're doing tomorrow, and we'll see you next week, Lord willing.